Welcome to the IH Podcast, where we profile fellows of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, I speak with Beverly Taylor, professor of English. In our conversation, Professor Taylor discusses her current project on the 19th century English poet and proto-feminist Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Can you talk a little bit about the the project you're working on right now? Yes, actually I started. I thought I was going to write this book about the poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning when I had a fellowship here years ago. It was a really long time ago. And I started a chapter and I thought I was moving along swimmingly. And then I got involved in doing working on a scholarly edition of the poetry of Elizabeth Barrett Browning. There hadn't been a full edition since 1900. Oh, wow. And it wasn't a scholarly edition. It left out lots of the poetry. It didn't have useful notes and introductions and things that students and general readers, too, would especially use. So I got involved with a group of women who were editing. Well, I shouldn't say all women. It was mostly women, but a couple of men were involved, too. And we edited the works. It was five volumes, about 2,000 pages of poetry. And about 500 pages had never been published before. Oh, wow. So it was unpublished work from manuscripts that we, we had to take magnifying glasses and try to read this tiny, tiny script that was fading rapidly. Some of it was in pencil. Some of it's cross-written. This was a habit in the 19th century. Well, it traces back much earlier, but people were trying to save paper. Oh, yeah. And so they'd write horizontally, and then they'd turn their paper 90 degrees and write what turns out to look like vertically. So you have two layers of writing on the same page. So the manuscripts themselves were very difficult to make out sometimes. And when Elizabeth Barrett Browning and then subsequently her husband, Robert Browning, died, they left everything to their son. And when he died, he had no will. Oh, no. So all and a lot of relatives, uh, his ex-wife, his cousins, some aunts and uncles, they all wanted some of the memorabilia from Robert and Elizabeth Barrett Browning, and some of them wanted to sell things because they would command a great price. So there was, it had to be sold so things could be divided up. Sotheby's had an auction of all of the possessions of Robert and Elizabeth Barrett Browning, including their, mostly her manuscripts, because he had destroyed his. Oh, wow. He didn't want, well, yeah, the poet Tennyson from the same time period said he didn't want people working over the chips from his workshop. Yeah. And so Robert Browning really dreaded the kind of invasion of his personal yeah. papers and letters, and he destroyed things. So it's mostly Elizabeth Bear Browning's, and she seems to have saved every scrap she'd ever written on. But to maximize profits from the sale, Sotheby's ripped manuscripts, like if a poem went on to three pages, they would sell the three pages separately. And so some pieces of a poem would go to Chicago and some to New York and some to Texas and some to England. And so you might be in an archive in a rare book library in Texas 
and read part of a poem and then months later be on a research trip in New York and find a part of a poem, but you didn't have any way of comparing the paper or the ink or anything to see if they actually belong together. Yeah. So it was very difficult work, painstaking. But I'm so glad, and that took years. Yeah. So we finally (laughs) published our 500 pages of previously unpublished material and 1,500 pages more of poems that had been published. And it's a wonderful, huge edition that we worked really hard on. But I'm so glad I stopped this other book project and did the edition because then I just found a lot more material that I hadn't known before. So now I've come back, and while I was department chair, I didn't have much time to do scholarship research and writing. But every summer, I would plug along Mm -hmm. with a chapter, and so I wrote three in the last three years. And then now with a year's leave, I had a department research leave in the fall and the IH fellowship now. So I'm just about to finish it, and I'm really excited. That's great. Is there anything, since you spent a large amount of time studying, well, I guess to begin, what drew you to Elizabeth Barrett Browning in the first place, to spend so much time studying her work and recuperating her work as well? That's a good question, because when she, during her lifetime, and she died in 1861. Okay. So during her lifetime, she was very famous. In 1850, when William Wordsworth died, she was recommended in one of the important literary magazines as a possible poet laureate of England. But Alfred Tennyson became poet laureate. Okay. She continued to be immensely popular around the world, really, but especially in Italy, especially in America. Once she got a letter addressed to Elizabeth Barrett, Poetess, London, and it was delivered to her. (laughs) I mean, really, that's how prominent a figure she was. Okay. And that's before she went to Italy and wrote most of her major work. Mm. She was extremely popular in her time, but after she died, Robert Browning became extremely famous, much better known. He wasn't widely known in her lifetime, but after she died, he came into his own as a major, major poet. And then in the 20th century, she was just lost track of, pretty much. When I went to graduate school, so this would have been in the early 70s, 1970s, she appeared on a list that my Victorian professor passed out of secondary poets that you should know something about, but you don't have to read. Okay. And I didn't read her, Uh and no one was reading her at that time. And it has to do with sexism in the academy. It has to do with the views of women culturally from the 1950s forward, the idea that women's place was in the home and that we don't look to them for artistic excellence or intellectual leadership or anything like that. So the poetry of her, of Elizabeth Barrett Browning, that was valued in the, up until the 1970s in the 20th century, was mostly sonnets from the Portuguese, which is what she's most famous for. And that's a series of sonnets celebrating her husband as the great man, right, the great poet. And so that's what 
my professors valued about her. Okay. But in the 1970s, as feminist scholars became really active in the academy, they began looking at other poetry Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote. And this really is where I should have started with my answer to your question about my project. Elizabeth Barrett Browning was not typical of her age in that she wrote very feminist poetry and very political poetry. And at that time, the poetess was a prominent figure in literary England, and poetesses wrote sweet poetry, domestic, celebrating family relationships, love, flowers, birds, trees. You know, they were really sweet. Women weren't supposed to write about politics, and Elizabeth Barrett Browning did. Actually, I just saw a critic recently who said um, before her marriage in 1846, Elizabeth Barrett uh, was a lyric poet who wrote about the things poetesses talked about. And after that, Elizabeth Barrett Browning was very much interested in politics. And she wrote a couple of very powerful abolitionist poems when she was invited to contribute to an abolitionist annual in America. Uh, she wrote a lot of poems about Italian, the Risorgimento, the Italian Revolution, uh, where they were striving for unification and independence as a nation state, independence from the Austrian Empire. And she wrote more subtly, perhaps, but a, a eventually pretty aggressively, about women as intellectual citizens who had a responsibility to address the big issues of the day. So she's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Can you talk about a book that changed your life? Uh, there's so many. One, um, I think, had an interesting impact on my teaching in the sense that when I was in college, I just assumed I would become a high school English teacher. And so I did the student teaching as part of my training. And when I was a senior in college, I was in, at the University of Mississippi. Okay. And I was going to be practice teaching for six weeks in the town of Greenwood, a small town um, in North Mississippi. And I was going to be teaching um, an American literature class, one class, and the teacher I'd be working with invited me to suggest any American novel I wanted to teach in the course. So I had recently read To Kill a Mockingbird yeah. and found it very powerful. And I wrote back that I would like to teach that class, that novel to the class. And I pretty quickly got a letter back saying, no, I could not do that. Because this was 1969. Right. And that was too strong for Greenwood, Mississippi. Wow. And so she suggested a novel I'd never read before, and I really thought it was pitiful, a John Steinbeck novel called The Pearl. It was very allegorical, and you were supposed to come to understand that there's a treasure in life that you must find and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and the students were bored, and I was bored. But, yeah. Um, so really from that, and there was one other incident that spring that indicated to me I really didn't want to teach high school English. 
one for one reason I would be teaching the same materials the same courses over and over and over they weren't very inventive right. back in 1969 but the other thing is we got a message from the principal's office saying today we understand that the seniors are going to try to come to class with no shoes on as their big breakout event like senior of being prank. a senior yeah <laughs> under no circumstances will you allow a student into the classroom without shoes and i just thought i do not want to spend my professional life looking at students feet to be sure they're wearing shoes you know so at that point, for the first time, I thought about going to graduate school, and here okay. I am today. But so the, you, ne- you never taught high school beyond that practice? No, six weeks. Okay. And I never worked so hard in my life. I have yeah. the most immense respect for high school English teachers. They work so hard. I taught middle and high school for four years before <laughs> coming to grad school. So. But you know what I'm talking yeah. about. Oh, yeah. It's really yep. hard. It's yeah. important work. But another book that I read more recently that I think is really important for me is a little book called Mr. Pip. And it's a novel set in Papua New Guinea Mm -hmm. in the 1980s when there was a civil war going on there. And a New Zealand journalist, Lloyd-Jones, went to cover the aftermath of this civil war as a newspaper man, and he wrote this novel. And what it talks about is the importance of reading for kids growing up in disasters, in dangerous times. Yeah. So while this civil war is going on around them and they don't understand why they are in the crosshairs as different groups come in and slaughter their livestock and kill their friends and, you know, it's a disastrous wartime experience. Meanwhile... Their teacher is telling them the story of Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. And the way they adapt what they hear in that novel that's remote from them in time and place, the teacher always has to stop and explain what is snow. Oh, okay. uh, Things that they've never experienced, Mm -hmm. and it seems like the novel is totally irrelevant for them. But it mattered to them, and it matters in a lot of different ways to different characters. So it's a great book to teach in class now. I see students thinking about why reading matters to me. Yeah. Why does a book speak to me? And how can it sustain my sanity, my sense of who I am in a world that's chaotic and dangerous? It's a beautiful read, and it's short, and people can read it fast, and they love it. I love it. That's great. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thanks for talking with me. Check back at ih.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.